All right, all right. Oh, you guys just instinctively sat down, which is beautiful, but can you please stand right back up? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. All right. Um, we are going to have our scripture reading, um, and we stand just in reverence to the Word of God. Um, you know, we are here, and we hear a lot of ideas and hopefully some good wisdom but if there is any wisdom here, it, it comes from the scripture. It comes from the word of God. So here we go. Galatians chapter 4. Oh, somebody changed it. It said chapter 3 last service. You fixed it. Thanks, buddy. Okay. Uh, so Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Father, we just pray you be with us today. And as we study your word, we pray that you would come and that you would retrain our hearts to, to love what you love. And to live the life that you lived. And we love you. And so thank you for this chance we have to be with you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial for you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me in as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous provided for the purpose is good and to be so always, not just when I am with you, my dear children for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay, so um, you guys, there's a lot happening here uh, in the text. And our job for today is to simply understand it. And then, of course, we want to live it out together, right? We're not just here to learn, study uh, the Bible, but we want to actually be Jesus people who live out what we say we believe. So if you're just joining us, um, welcome in. Uh, but if you've been around, remember that Paul is writing to a group of people he knew. And you can see that in the verses we just read. He had planted these churches in Galatia just a few years prior with a guy named Barnabas. You can read the story in Acts chapter 13 and 14. It is wild. So to say that the Galatians and Paul had had a lot of history together and had been through a lot together is to put it mildly. You know, when you live a lot of life with people, you share a deep bond with them. I remember like uh, 10 years ago, right before Isabel, our, our firstborn, was, was born, I went uh, and I attempted to climb South Sister uh, with a friend of mine, uh, Nick, as uh, what we decided to do in the wintertime. Because I had climbed it multiple times in the summer, and by that time I was kind of bored of it. But my buddy had never been, and so I said, Nick, I'll go with you, but we have to do it in the winter. I'm known for my bad ideas. This was like one of my top five worst. Uh, really bad, really bad idea, as it turns out. So, um, so anyways, let me just start with like the drive out there. There was like probably like 15, 20 inches of brand new fresh powder. And so as we were on our way up to find the trailhead to where we were starting, we got stuck in the snow in the truck, 
It took us like 45 minutes to just like dig ourselves out so that we could get out again. And so we're already late behind the pace that we wanted to be. It's the sun's about to set, all this craziness. And then we get in back to the truck and we go to start it up so that we can finish driving out to the trailhead. Where are the keys? The keys are in the piles of snow that we just made digging out the truck. My buddy Nick had like his keys come out of his pocket or whatever. So we spent the rest of our time just trying to figure out where the keys were at. By the way, this hasn't even gotten bad yet. Like there is so much more to this story. So anyways, we finally find the keys, make our way like the harrowing journey to the trailhead and we're off to the races. But because there was so much fresh snow and no one had climbed South Sister since that deep snow, there was like no route that we could discernibly find. And so we just spent a lot of time with our maps out and like trying to figure out which way to go. And it was super steep terrain and all of that stuff. And then what I soon discovered is that... Um, my snowshoes were rated for 240 pounds. And uh, I, I found out that I was testing the limit of that 240 pounds because I was 200 or so at the time, plus a ton of gear because we were climbing up South Sister, so we needed all kinds of gear. So I found out I exceeded the weight limit, which is not a fun realization when you figure that out. But the way I figured that out is because I was punching through the snow down past my knee on every single step. And if you've ever been snowshoeing and that happens, it's like really laborious and super hard. Plus you're like flinging snow all over yourself as you're climbing. It just is a complete disaster. This was pre-Instagram, but you know, if it, it was not an Instagram moment, no way we would have Instagrammed that. So anyways, we are slowly making our way up South Sister, way slower than we anticipated. We didn't get nearly as far as we thought we would at the first day. And so we just decide, you know, it's frigid cold, the, the, the temperature is dropping, but we were also like, because we were working so hard, we were sweating like crazy, which if you've been climbing in the mountains in the wintertime, you know that's a big no-no. Like that's how you, you know, get hypothermia and die. My mom's over in the corner not having heard this story and she's freaking out. Um, but so anyways, we, we, we decide to like call it quits at probably like 11 p.m. or something like that. And we built this snow cave, which was pretty cool that we knew how to do that. And we, it, we felt awesome about it. You guys aren't impressed, but I was impressed with myself. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I needed that. I don't know why. I just really did. Um, anyways, so as, as we build our snow cave, we realized that all of our water has frozen obviously, because it's like getting super, super cold. We're like, well, that's a bummer, obviously, but good thing we have our camp stoves with us. We can just melt some snow, melt some ice. That way we could rehydrate, we can warm up, we can maybe cook some food and stuff like that. But I also found out something else. I found out my snowshoes were rated to 240 pounds, exceeded that limit. Then I also found out that white gas stops working at zero degrees because our gas was completely and totally frozen. And so we went to like start the stoves and it wouldn't start. Did you guys know this? I did not know this. Okay. So this was a horrible time to find out by the way, because <laughs> now we're like, what are we going to do? And so uh, my buddy, Nick, he had this bright idea, which it was at the time, it was a great idea. He uh, said, well, let's take our white gas, let's put it in our sleeping bags, get it in our sleeping bags. And over time, our body temperature will warm it up. Maybe then it'll work. Turns out it did. So that was awesome, probably saved our life. You might be thinking to yourself, okay, this thing's kind of turning around. And it did turn around for a second until Nick's 
uh, sleeping bag caught on fire because it was too close to the thing. So imagine, so imagine, like we've already had this like disaster of a day. We're finally like sipping like three ounces of water that we melted. And then all of a sudden there's a fire in the snow cave. I didn't even know that was possible around all that snow to have a fire. But sure enough, it's possible. So now we're like stamping out his his uh, uh, sleeping bag and everything else, and there's this big gaping hole in it. <laughs> Anyways, we were like, forget life, we're just over this. And so we just tried to sleep, got a few hours, woke up in the morning, still determined to summit South Sister um, because I'm too headstrong and don't know when to quit. And uh, so I, we start climbing again, make it maybe a quarter mile, and my buddy Nick like strains his knee really hard. He, turns weird on a rock or something like that, and he just like wrecked his knee. And then all of a sudden, we're sitting there like, well, now we, we're done. We got, we got to go back. So what we do is we just, I take some more of his gear, and uh, we just start slowly making our way back down to the trailhead. Thank God we ran into a couple of guys who were on snowmobiles, and they gave us a ride the rest of the way back to the town. So what started as like this really amazing, rugged adventure for me and my buddy Nick, we felt very manly, we felt like we were men of the mountain and all of that. We wound up, like, it just turned into me and him, injured and freezing cold, riding back to the trailhead with our arms around the waist of guys that we had never met. <laughs> Motorcycle date style, which is super embarrassing. I've never been more emasculated in my life. So. So that kind of experience between friends, it bonds you together in ways that seeing Top Gun at the old mill would just never do, right? In fact, every time I see Nick now, he lives in, in, in Colorado, and he uh, comes and visits every now and again, and he sometimes listens to the podcast. So sorry I had to out our story, buddy, if you're listening to this. But um, every time I see Nick, that, those memories just come rushing back to us, and uh, we're, we're friends for life because of an experience like that that kind of bonds us together, Right? That was a long way of getting to my first point, but here we are. In verse 12 through 16, Paul is reminding the Galatians that, similar to me and Nick, they've been through a lot of life together. They've been through a lot together. And then he's talking about how that, plus their relationship with Jesus, it should bond them together for life. That's what their experience together should have done. They should have been bonded together for life. But because... The people of Galatia were beginning to follow Paul's rivals who had came through town with a sort of distorted, twisted, quasi-gospel of Jesus, but it wasn't really. They were unraveling the friendship that they had built with Paul before their very eyes. And it's tragic. Paul's saying, please don't do this. Please don't give up, throw away what we have. We're friends, and we're, we're meant to be lifelong friends. We're in the family together. What, what is going on here? But even more than that, he's, uh, he's, he's mentioning that when you're following that twisted gospel, like the Galatians were, they were actually not just like unraveling their friendship, but they were eroding the family bonds that we share in Christ on a church-wide level. Paul has this very deep sense that if we let go of the true gospel, in its form, that it's God's multi-ethnic family coming together under King Jesus. That if we lose sight of that gospel, then the family bonds we are designed to share and the generous agape love that God has in mind for us is eroding along with the church. 
So what was that rival gospel? Those of you who've been around through the series, you probably remember, but those of you who are not, or maybe you just need a reminder, the rival gospel was forcing secondary issues of race, politics, gender, socioeconomics, and things like that above the primary reality that Christ died and rose again to reconcile all the families of the earth to himself. He's saying that we're like when we twist the gospel, it has something to do with that distortion. Other identities, other, other things that we're passionate about, other things, they get elevated above Christ and the gospel. And Paul's saying you cannot let that happen. And then he also goes on to say in the last chapter that if anyone is in Christ, then we are all incorporated into his one unified family. His one unified family. In other words, uh, we don't get to say, like, oh, I don't need Nicola. Nicola doesn't need me. I'm not a part of that family. No, no, no. When you say yes to Jesus, you are welcomed into the singular unified body of Christ, which is being renewed and re reunited in the day to come. Amen? All right. So um, if you're hearing this and you're going, man, this is sure on topic, on theme with what's going on in the church of Bend and, quite frankly, the church in the evangelical West, you're absolutely right. Good job. You figured it out. We think this is why the scripture or why the spirit of God led us to study this letter together. Because this is an ongoing issue in our time. And, in, and, and we believe that not, not because we think that God is like wanting us to call out the hypocrisy of other churches in our area or in our world. We believe that God is calling us to study this letter so that we would wake up and that we would rejoin God's beautiful redemption project to unite all things under Christ, which Paul is just saying is to be a good friend over a true friend, or just give me a true friend over a false friend. He's saying this is how you really truly become the kind of brother that everyone wants to say, yeah, that's my man. He's in the family. I'm with him for life. So that's essentially what Paul is making this argument on a personal appeal level, and it's beautiful. So uh, verse 20 tells us that Paul wanted to be in Galatia to work out this issue that they were having in person. He said, I wish we were face to face so that I could change my tone of voice. But Paul, as you guys know, travel back then was way more expensive than it is now. It took a long time. It's also very dangerous. Plus, we think Paul is probably on his way to Jerusalem at this point. Uh, to deal with this issue with the elders of the whole church. So rather than being able to go to Galatia all by himself, or go, go to Galatia right here, he has to go and try and uh, resolve it through a letter. And the way that he does this is he appeals to their friendship. Look what verse 12 says. He says, become like me because I became like you. Become like me, I became like you. In other words, he's, he's appealing to the credibility of the relationship, the equity and the relationship that he's had over years of being their pastor and their church planner and their apostle and their leader. He says, remember, I became like you. Come towards me like I came towards you. And what he means by this is that when he was with them, he renounced his Jewish privilege, okay? So when he rolled into town, he rolled into town as a Jewish man in a Gentile city. And he had the acumen, he had the awareness, he had the sensitivity to embrace their culture without losing his identity and his message. So he's not compromising his message, he's not compromising who he is, but he's embracing their culture. And this is what Paul does all throughout the God, or excuse me, all, all throughout the book of Acts. So this would be like if you were like flying to Boston this week, let's say, the week after the Celtics lost the NBA Finals. 
okay? And let's say you're a Golden State Warrior fan. You're a, you're a Warrior fan, right? Okay, so you grew up in San Jose. So, uh, so you would be a Warriors fan. So let's say, as a Warriors fan, flying to Boston, you wear your Warriors hat. Understandable, makes sense why you would want to wear it. Your team just won the NBA Finals, it's a good deal. Are you free to do that, flying into Boston? Of course you are. Like, of course you're, we live in a free country, you've got freedom of speech, all that stuff. But you're definitely going to be seen as a jerk. You're definitely going to be hated. You're definitely going to get a lot of sideways looks, and you're probably not going to close the deal with the potential client that you had in mind when you flew in there, right? So in other words, Paul is saying, when I was with you, I took off my warrior's hat. I, like, I, I, I took away the things that made me culturally different from you so that I could connect with you on a human level. I want to connect with you as a human. So therefore, I, I let the parts of my preferences, my cultural heritage, I let all of those things fade into the background. First Corinthians, he teaches the same exact thing, only he goes into depth and he explains what he means. This is what it says. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, law, parenthetical phrase, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like the one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. It's confusing, but you know what I'm saying. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. Then this is what verse 23 says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Come on, that's good. That is good. That's the word of the Lord. So Paul's saying this is the attitude and the posture of the wise, mature leader, evangelist, pastor, church planter. Is, the, is, is that we set aside culture, we set aside preference for the sake of being uh, winsome and winning, winning people to Christ. Now, before any of us get the wrong idea, the scripture is not suggesting that you table your opinions about politics, let's say, so that you can win people to your political viewpoint eventually. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that we are to table our opinions around people we know differ from us so that you might be able to win them to Christ, right? So there is a much bigger, big, there is a big difference between the agenda of God and our personal agenda about the crisis of the moment, right? God has a big agenda and it's not like what you happen to be, what your take is on that Huffington Post article, okay? I'm sorry to not, not to, um, I don't know. I'm not trying to demean you, but this is something we have to hear. So we want to lay down, table our, our opinions so that we may be able to win people to Christ. And if people already know him, then we keep Christ at the center of our relationships. We feel free to disagree on secondary issues, but as Ephesians 4, 2 puts it, we make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That is our primary goal. So God's agenda to redeem the world is so much bigger, wider, deeper, and way more ultimate than my opinion on current events. And he's far more interested in you being a true friend 
being a true brother to people inside the family and then connecting in a real human way with people outside the family, again, on a human level, in hopes that you might be able to win them to Christ and be rewarded in the age to come. This is literal verbatim, like from the New Testament that I'm quoting to you here. Is that we, we, are, we submit ourselves to, to the agenda of God. Okay, moving forward. You guys with me still? Okay, Moses is in. Sweet. All right, I still got Moses. Okay, moving on. He, he says, I became like you and didn't have any problems between us. He's saying, because I made it my goal that I was going to make sure. I knew what our differences were. I knew how we were culturally different. I came into a Gentile city as a Jewish man. I knew what made me different from you. And because I made it my goal not to have any problems between us, there were no problems between us. We were good. We were good. And then the rest of verse 12 says, then you did me no wrong. You did me no wrong. I did right by you. You did right by me. That's what Paul's saying. In fact, verse 13, 14, go further. He says, you welcomed me in despite the fact that I was weak and sick. He says, you, you did right by me. Galatians, you, were, you did me a solid. You were my brothers and you were my sisters. See, why is Jesus-loving people kind of feel differently about how to interpret this? But this is probably how we should read what Paul is saying in verses 13 and 14. When Paul went to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, the cities in Galatia, he had already been beaten within an inch of his life and left for dead at least once, right? So as he's rolling into Derby, excuse me, as he's rolling into uh, Iconium, he's already been beaten within an inch of his life. He's been stoned, rocks thrown at his head and left for dead in the desert, right? So he's running from the people who want him dead. And he's coming to Galatia, of course, to preach the gospel, but he's also coming to heal from being stoned out of his gourd and almost not surviving, right? So imagine you're a Galatian family. All right, imagine you're one of the Galatians and these two preachers come rolling into town sharing a message about a Jesus Messiah. And it's intriguing to you and you wanna hear more and all of that, but it's also super problematic because he's clearly bearing the signs of persecution. Meaning, like this dude, this Paul dude, this Barnabas guy, these are socially dangerous people to associate with. Because look at what just happened to this guy because of the message that he was preaching. Socially dangerous message to associate with, person to deal with. And by the way, if we do believe his message, then he's kind of our responsibility. We have to watch our backs because now there's a target on our backs and we have to nurse him back to health. So what do the Galatians do? What does the scripture say? Verse 14 says this, even though my illness was a trial to you, you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. He says, I can testify that. If you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So the Galatians responded well. They did right by Paul. So despite the fact that his condition was a burden and him being with them put a target on their backs, they welcomed him in and they took good care of him. That is just like plain and simple, good Jesus-loving stuff right there. And that's exactly the kind of people we want to be. For those of you who, who care, I, some of you do, I know. Um, this line that you could have torn out your eyes and given them to me, if you could do that, you would. This is like a first century idiom that's like, hey, he's the kind of guy who would give you the shirt off his own back. So that's what's going on there. And, and so the question becomes, 
Like, could that be said of you and me? Like when people reach out, when they need you, are you there? Are you present? And are you helping them in their times of need? That's what that scripture is all about. So what we have here is what I think the biblical authors would call a relationship of agape love. Relationship of agape love. Paul defers his own cultural heritage and risks his life to make a human connection with them and invite them into God's family. They respond by caring for his personal needs, even though it's inconvenient and very costly. That's agape love. And the implied sort of command or message to us, if you will, is come on, like you and me, let's be those kind of dependable people who will bless, who will bless and who will serve when people around us need our help. When people turn to you, you are there for them. There's so many examples of this in our little church right here, right now. I'm so proud to call you guys my church home, my church family, because I've seen with my own eyes your radical uh, heart to serve and your radical heart of generosity. Last week, um, you, we saw what your gifts have done to help rescue some kids out of the sex trade in northern Brazil. And that's just remarkable that you mobilized as quickly as you did to serve and to care for them. It's remarkable. Thank you so, 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 so much. Also, a couple months ago, there's a family, one of you, who decided to help a, a, another family who had no way of paying for college. Said, hey, we're going to, all your kids, we're going to foot the bill. We're going to take care of it. Which is just astounding. It's incredible. And of course, no one besides those intimately involved are ever going to know that story. And it's not going to be brought, published or broadcast or whatever because that's not the point. The point is to get credit for it. The point is to be a blessing and to care for the people in our community. And it's beautiful. I love it. This is exactly the Jesus kind of loving stuff that we're talking about. Okay, so let's keep reading. That's the kind of person you want to be, the true kind of friend, not the false friend. So this is what he says, verse 15. He says, where then is your blessing of me now? Where did all of that go? We built all of this goodwill together. I served you. You were there for me. Where is that now? Now you're abandoning what we built. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Oh. He says, listen, all I'm doing is I'm telling you what's true. You might not like what I have to say, but it's anchored in the word. It's anchored in God's heart. And so... Does that make me your enemy? Because I'm the one who's willing to look at you and tell you what's actually true. That kind of hits home, kind of hits home. Just this last week, uh, I was hanging with um, some friends in Lake Tahoe. We took our staff team to the Intentional Leadership Conference where Brooke works as a, also as a part of our team. is also part of this ministry called Intentional. This is a fantastic conference that we all got to go to get together. And I got to catch up with some really old friends that I haven't had a chance to hang out with very much these last few years. And I was catching up with this one dude who um, is still kind of like licking his wounds from the COVID days, which is super sad to say that it's still ongoing, but it is. Anyways, he was talking, he's a pastor in California, and he was processing with me out loud for maybe the first time because I could understand his situation. Like, like what was difficult about leading through the pandemic for him? Now, for context, most older pastors will tell you, you know what? They've been pastoring for a long time, and they want to encourage younger pastors, which many of them do. They will say things like, you know what, yes, pastoring is hard, but, but if you care for a family during a tragedy in their life, you go visit them in the hospital. 
You pray for them. You serve them. You do hours and hours of pastoral direction. You, you step in and, in into their life on a day off or whatever. That family is going to be with you for life. <laughs> and it's this great little sentiment that we all really took to heart and sort of universally accepted that encouragement. Like, yeah, that's what happens. Like when you serve people, it forms a bond. That's what it should do. But my friend was telling me through tears, literally tears, he's going, man, he had all of these families in his church who he had done funerals for, did hours of, of pastoral direction for, found money in the budget for to help them with their bills and all of this stuff. And then just a few months later, they angrily break fellowship with him to find the closest pastor who will stand up on a Sunday and condemn Governor Newsom's mask policy. And his heart is just reeling from that. Say what you will about masks. It's not about masks. It's about the bond that we are meant to share. He says, am I now your enemy because I refuse to bow to your demands around whether or not to wear masks? And, and I, I saw my broken friend who's done nothing but give his life to the ministry of like bringing people into the kingdom. And he's had people say, up you. Like I'm, after he cared for them, tragic. The point isn't about master, no mass. Obviously, clearly we're well past that. His point is about our willingness to throw away friendship, to throw away family devotion, and in some cases to throw away truth-telling leaders over secondary issues that do not belong. I'm not saying my buddy's a perfect pastor or handled the pandemic flawlessly. Certainly I did not. I think I missed the day on pandemic at seminary. Like, I was not prepared. Not prepared for church online, not prepared for deciphering emails from CDC every day, not prepared for like the outcry over organizing communities over Zoom. I was not the best at it. No, no, no way are any of us saying that. But the point is that it is our collective job from me, the lead pastor, to you and to the second grader who's up in the Sunday school class. It is our job to maintain gospel and family love. Amen. Gospel and family love. And our bonds are supposed to be stronger than our preferences over things that are insignificant in light of the cross. Amen. They're supposed to be stronger than that. And Paul is saying, not even for himself, and I would say my pastor buddy would probably say the same. He's not feeling sorry for himself, although I'm sure there is a part of it that is that. He's saying, have I been teaching in the church so long and we still haven't gotten the very basic of love for brother? Like, have we not even gotten that yet? Like, what if we're not able to love? Then, you, you know? So he's saying, like our family bonds are supposed to be stronger than that. Paul, carried along by the Holy Spirit, is appealing to them. Do not, please, don't throw away what Christ gave us. Christ destroyed the barrier, the hostility that ripped us apart. Jesus on his cross did away with that. Don't rebuild those walls. Like, we are one in Christ. We are part of the same family. If we're rebuilding those walls, we've lost sight of the true gospel. 
So he's saying, don't, don't throw away what Jesus gave us. Don't, don't throw away what Jesus gave us. And he's doing it, I think he's doing it, Paul here's doing it with humility and zeal. He's, he, he cares for his people. And he cares for the church. Notice how he frames it in verse 17. He says, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us. So that you may have zeal for them. So if you missed a portion of this series, uh, going back to chapter 2, some of this won't hit home the same. But you can go back and listen to the podcast if you're interested. And essentially what Paul has already done is he's already exposed his rival's message as just being flat untrue, just wrong-headed in every way. It's misinformation, and they've been persuading the Galatians to abandon the true gospel. And now he's, he's going a step further, and he's exposing their corrupt motives. He's saying they're after something that's not Jesus. He says their goal is for you to be zealous for them. They want you to be zealous for them. This is what the Bible calls selfish ambition. And by the way, that's just something you don't want, is selfish ambition. And you certainly don't want it from your leaders. I would say be wary of your leaders who are self-promoting. And there's, far different, there's many different kinds of self-promotion. I think overt self-promotion is super easy to spot, and people, most of you are discerning enough to just spot it straight away. But covert self-promotion can be way more tricky, and it's not always malicious or whatever. Leaders are just kind of being, you know, subconsciously, because of insecurity or immaturity or maybe a father wound or something like that, are, are, are pulling you in and influencing you to, to, to uh, be zealous for them instead of zealous for Christ. And here's, here's, how you can, here's how you can spot it. Like your, your covert self-promoting leaders, they will be saying a lot of the right things, but over time you'll discover that they're promoting their brand. It's about, ultimately it's about them. And ultimately it's about what they're doing and not the Christ. And Paul is saying in verse 18, it is okay to be zealous. He says it's good to be zealous even, but you've got to be zealous about the right stuff. Don't be zealous for an elitist Christian tribe. Don't do it. Don't be the tribe that we've got the right take on this or that policy issue. We've got the right take on critical race theory. We've got the right take on biblical theology. We've got the right take on American rule of law. We've got the right take on the news broadcast to listen to and not listen to. We've got the right view on gun laws, on Roe v. Wade. We protest the right injustices, whatever. He's like, don't, like, that's not where you draw your line. That's not the hill you die on. That's not what you're zealous for. What you are zealous for is Jesus. You're jealous for him. You are zealous and your allegiance is to him and him alone. So when you pledge your allegiance, you pledge your allegiance to Jesus. See, Romans chapter 12, verse 11 says, Never be lacking a zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Keep your fervor pointed in the right direction. Paul's basically saying, I think he's doing it uh, in a winsome, comforting way. I think he's saying that it's easy for us to be zealous for the wrong things. It's possible for us to be zealous for leaders with corrupt motives. 
But the teaching here in Romans 12 and also in Galatians 4 is be zealous for Jesus and the kingdom only. And the Galatians, they had been, they had started out on the right foot. Remember, that's kind of like the whole point why Paul is so perplexed. He says, you started out on the right foot. You were zealous for the right stuff. When I was around, we, we, we had the right idea. He says in verse 18, he says, be zealous always, not just when I'm with you. <laughs> in, order words, in other words, he's saying it's, it's really straightforward and in some ways simple and easy to have passion for God when we're around our like wise leaders or when Kylie and Ryan are leading us in worship or Danny or someone is leading us in worship. It's simple because we are, we are, uh, we are singing a song of praise of victory to Jesus. And that's, it's clear what that is. But then when we're around the wrong influences, we can find ourselves either lacking passion or having passion for the wrong things, being twisted around to be passionate about the wrong stuff. But notice what he says in verse 18. He says, verse 19, excuse me. He says, when Christ is formed in you. So if you're a student of spiritual formation, as many of you are, that phrase, like Christ formed in you, is such uh, an important uh, moniker or word for you to hold on to. When Christ is fully formed in you, you won't need to have anyone holding your hand anymore to keep you on the right path or to keep you passionate about the right stuff. You will yourself be, be motivated because when Christ is formed in you, you possess the character and you possess the presence of God to carry the kingdom of God wherever you go, no matter who you're with. And so you want to be that kind of person who is like the Apostle Paul, whether he's in Galatia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Corinth, Ephesus, everywhere he's going, he's bringing Jesus culture there. And it's because he possesses the character and he possesses the presence of God. So this is what we long for ourselves. Notice also, um, last couple of verses. It says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. See, Paul compares himself here to a pregnant woman, which I understand sounds strange as a, as a man, as a guy. But what he's saying is this really common biblical symbol that new life comes out of pain. In fact, that's what the scripture says is coming in the new creation. It, Jesus says that they're like birth pains. All of what the world will go through before the return of Jesus is like birth pains. It's, it's painful, it's agony, but it's on the way to some new life. And that, we find that all over the scripture. So when he comes to Galatia, he's like the Jesus-like figure. He is the crucified Messiah in a way. He's been beaten within an inch of his life. He's been risking his life for them and continues to do it. And so he says, when Christ is formed in you, then this is the kind of posture you have in the world. You're willing to sacrifice and go through the ups and downs of life with your people. You're willing, you're able to do it. So uh, Paul leaves us with what it is to be a true friend. And that's what I want to leave you with is what does it mean for you to be a true friend as opposed to being the false friend? This could be doing relationships Jesus way. Or if you are in a broken relationship with someone that you need reconciliation, then uh, this would be Paul's suggestion for how you do that. Or this is how you fortify your existing relationships in this community and others. The first thing, becoming a true friend, is to purify your motives. Sort it out in your own heart. Are you in relationships of utility or relationships of agape? Our culture is brilliant at relationships of utility. 
That is, I bring something to the relationship that's of value to you. You bring something of the relationship that's of value to me. As long as it still pencils out, we're all good. But as soon as it doesn't, I'm moving on to find a new friend that does work for me in a utilitarian way. And I would say this, that shift in how we view relationships is probably why marriage in the West is eroding as quickly as it is. He's saying you want, a, you want relationships of agape. You don't want to have selfish ambition, vain conceit. You want to be filled with a motive to bless and to love others. And again, like I was saying a moment ago, I think so many of you have modeled that and embodied that in some really incredible ways. Um, you can look at this scripture again, of course, or you can look at James chapter 3. It says, why is there quarrels among you? It's because you have selfish ambition. You have vain conceit. Saying that, that's why it's there. So the way of wisdom is to notice your motivations that might be leading you to be zealous for something else that's not him, that's not Jesus. And it might be motivating you, in fact, to break table fellowship or family devotion to people over secondary issues. He says, no, 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 you are a Jesus person first. Um, second, consider the other person above yourself. This is just standard basic Christian relationships. We look to the needs of others before we look to the needs of ourselves. And I agree, if Nicola just does that, or if Duke just does that, or if Kylie just does that, then we've got an issue. We've got three people who are basically just enabling narcissists. But if the community of Jesus catches a vision, and, and we have all of you, we have Josh caring for the needs of others. We have Moses caring for the needs of others. We have Steve caring for the needs of others. We have Micah caring for the needs of others. We have Jeff, and we have Tiffany, and we have other Steve. And, we, and we're all caring for the needs of one another. Then we're actually a part of the Jesus movement that he intended us to be a part of. All part of the same body, concern for others' welfare above our own. Standard, basic Christian relationship. Number three, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. I love this line from, from Ephesians. You know, you've got the, 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 the where, where um, again, we, we kind of have this, like, culture here that's, that's kind of, I don't want to say passive-aggressive because that's very negative, but just we, we don't talk about the real stuff. We say the thing that's not really the thing. We're not de really dealing with the hard issue of why we might have a tough interpersonal relationship. But the way of Jesus is to uh, be honest and to correct and to offer loving rebuke when necessary. See, the reality is, is that a lot of Christians like myself, a lot of pastors like myself, want to clean up the messiness of church. We love the idea of all of us being really wise, mature Jesus people so that the mess goes away. But if that were the case, not saying it is, but let's just say it were the case, all of you are like 10 out of 10 on the being formed into the image of Jesus, then our natural inclination would be go, go outside of these walls and bring in a bunch of new people who are just as messy as we were when we started. So there is no getting out the messiness of the church. There's no cleaning up the messiness of the church. We are always going to be in relationship with people who are in process. We ourselves are people in process. Therefore, we need to have the tolerance for messiness in our life, which then means that we have to learn how to speak the truth in love. Um, Brooke is fantastic at this, by the way, our co-pastor here. Um, we were uh, in a staff meeting not too long ago, and oftentimes I could be really headstrong and just want to get all of our tasks done, and it could be really hyper-focused or whatever, uh, to the detriment sometimes of empathizing for the other people at the table and caring about their, how they're doing and stuff like that. And so um, he, he's, he's good about pointing that out. There was one time a couple weeks ago that happened, 
And after the meeting was over, he said, Andrew, can we just go for a lap? Let's just go for a lap. So we started walking around the neighborhood and stuff like that. And he was like, I just kind of picked up on something. I don't know if it's real or not, but I just wanted to see if I'm correct about this. Are you stressed? Are you exhausted? Are you like maybe hyper-focused on your task at hand right now? And uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, that's probably, probably true. And he goes, well, just so you know, like the way that the rest of the people at the table might have experienced you in that meeting is that you were impatient. And I was like, oh, dang. And then I thought about what he said, and he was actually totally and completely right. So I was like, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. Now let's get back to the church so I can go find everybody and apologize. Um, and that's exactly what we need. That's exactly what I need is people who will see my blind spots, help me see them and speak the truth in love to me. Uh, uh, oh, we're almost done. Create sacred space. Create sacred space. That's another way we become a true friend. So many times when we're talking about broken relationships or ro relationships that need fortification, we are too uh, reactionary as opposed to creating space and time to breathe. Um, it's amazing what just a little bit of, of, of time will do to help you understand, well, if I were to just react to what Steve just said to me, maybe I'm projecting onto him something that's not actually there. Maybe I misheard him. Maybe it was just a simple mis miscommunication. But instead, if I'm just reacting in the moment, I got my hair trigger, whatever, I'm just reacting, as opposed to slowing it down a little bit to think about my brother, think about his goodwill towards me, think about the reality that maybe what he said wasn't actually that big of a deal, and I can actually offer him grace and forgiveness. Sacred pause. It's learning to create time between when you react and when you respond. That's what it is. Second to last, patience. Exercise patience. This is how you become a true friend. Every single person in this room, every single person in your life is a mixture. There are so many amazing, beautiful qualities that you all embody. And I want to be like you, and I want to learn from you, all of that stuff. But you're also still got a long ways to go, as do I. I say that not judgmentally or as a critique. It's just what it is to be human. We're still in process. And so rather than, like, conveniently bouncing out of relationships... God is inviting us to stick with our people, devote ourselves to one another in brotherly love over the long haul, through the ups and downs of life, so that we might become ultimately more like him. That's the ecosystem of spiritual vitality that we call community. Ecosystem of spiritual vitality we call community. And then finally, last thing, is that like Paul suggested, it is so much better to do relational conflict face to face. He says, I wish I wasn't DMing you right now. I wish I could be there in person. And it's funny, you know, oftentimes when I talk with those of you in the church who are having interpersonal conflict, um, which it's normal. It's very human. It's going to happen. It's, ha it's happening to me. It's going to happen to you hundreds more times before you leave this earth. Okay? Um, it's funny to me how often we want to approach reconciliation over like a text thread, which is, in my view, a horrible, horrible idea. Just like a book text and a book text and a book text and a book text. There's no nuance. There's no com compassion. You can't understand very well what's in between the periods, or you know what I mean? So, so Paul is saying, and I think we should absorb this, like we need to, whenever possible, do relational reconciliation face-to-face -face in long-form conversation over coffee or a beer or something like that rather than just over uh, some kind of a message. Does that make sense? Okay. So there was a lot there. And 
There's also, as you can tell in my spirit, a sense of urgency around getting at least the love of Jesus correct. And I say this to you not because I want to confront behavior, but because I genuinely believe that some of us need a wake-up call because one day we will be at the end of life and we want to look back on this life with being able to be secure in the fact that we loved well like Jesus taught us to love. We, we, I, I don't know how this message hits you. Maybe, maybe it hit you fine and you're like gung-ho. M- maybe it hit you in another way where you're like, dude, wow. Came on strong. And I get, I get that. But I genuinely believe, even if you don't fully, you're not fully there with me now. When you're 80, 85, maybe facing terminal illness, you don't want to look back at relationships you burned over secondary issues. Over things in light of the cross, in light of Jesus' return, in light of eternity, they turns out they didn't matter helpful for you if I wear a mask? You got it. (laughs) Mask on. Fill in the blank. There's hundreds of other issues at hand. So if I have any sort of credibility with you, I just want to solemnly, like like Paul, with humility and with real zeal, like, please don't, please don't burn relationships with people were things that aren't about the gospel. You with me? Let's stand and let's pray.